It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Man, you can tell the students are gone, can't you? We're all wherever USA. It's good to have you here if you're here. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And what we've been doing over the last several weeks is taking Knoxville chunk by chunk, especially the central part of where we're looking to move, and praying over some of the things we see God doing and some of the needs that they have. And what we've been doing as of the last several weeks is we've been taking ministries and maybe even churches and praying and lifting them up in this area that we call Center City or Central City, which is about a 19-point change uh, square mile area around where we're going to be moving in the late spring of next year. But today I wanted to do something a little bit different, and that's bring up a neighborhood. We're going to be doing that as well from, from week to week, and I wanted to talk about the Magnolia Warehouse District. Um, it's very interesting. It's kind of hemmed in by you have Magnolia running through the middle of it. You have Martin Luther King, which is the southern border. Um, what borders it on the west is Hall of Fame. And then it just kind of, it kind of is amorphous a little bit more at the top. The interesting thing about the Magnolia Warehouse District, if you've ever driven up and down Magnolia, is that of all the neighborhoods we have, there's only one with a younger average age and that is actually UT. The University of Tennessee itself, the average age is 20 exactly. The average, just to put that into perspective, the average age of the entire center city, that whole 20 square mile area, is 36.4 years of age. Sounds kind of old, doesn't it? 36.4. When you go to the Magnolia Warehouse District, it drops all the way down to 29.3. It's the youngest besides UT. There's only 1,400 people living in that area, making it actually one of the most least densely populated areas. And if you look at a map, it's mostly because of how it's zoned. That's why they call it a warehouse district. But whenever you see a demographic like a very low, low age group that is not close to a college campus, that's because there's a lot of kids there pulling the average age down, right? Because kids are actually counted in a census. If you've ever filled out a census report, you put your kids in there in their age. What this means is that there is a predominant amount of kids in this Magnolia Warehouse District. If you look at other metrics, you see that there's also a large number of single parents' households. So you can kind of get a glimpse a little bit of the people that make up the Magnolia Warehouse District. And you kind of have to look a little bit for the houses because they're peppered behind some of the businesses and the retail off of Magnolia. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to pray for that district today, that neighborhood, but I wanted to pray for their Christmas. Because out of 1,400 people living there, how many kids do you think are in that? Remember, it's pulling the average down. Let's just say 50% just because math is easier when you do that, right? 700 kids, maybe, give or take 100. 700 kids there. Their Christmas is going to look different than your Christmas. When we have Christmas, we have traditions, right? We, we go and we meet with um, extended family, or we meet with family right here in town, and we have traditions, don't we? I mean, even if you don't say, hey, this is our tradition, it's time to do this, it just kind of happens. You eat at a certain time. You open gifts at a certain time. You sleep in at certain times. You do things at certain times. They look a little different in a household where you live with your mom and other siblings that are not, you know, your blood siblings. And maybe a boyfriend comes and lives in, or maybe a great-grandma comes and lives with you, and she's the primary caregiver. It looks a little different when there's a fracture, deep fractures inside of the nuclear family unit, fractures we don't really experience here. 
So Christmas looks different. I would like to pray for that. I would like to pray that in the next 10 years, 15 years, they start to see Christmas differently because they see Jesus differently. That their Jesus experience isn't defined by the fractures that they see in their family, but is rather defined by Jesus who epiphanied out of darkness to change their life. Because let me tell you something. We could set up shop and build a bunch of great ministries in that district, and we plan on doing it. But you're not going to see substantial change until Jesus comes in and changes 1,400 lives. And that's what's really going to change that neighborhood, right? When Jesus comes in, sets up shop, and epiphanies in people's hearts. So that's what I'd like to pray for today. The 1,400 people that live in the warehouse district, especially the kids, right? So, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And as we look at a map, we don't want the map just to become streets and houses and demographics and census data, but lives, faces, families, stories. Lord, we want to see Magnolia Warehouse District not just become gentrified, not just have better businesses and and repaired streets and less crime. We want to see Jesus come in and change the hearts and souls of households all through that area, demanding more missional communities, demanding more premarital counseling, demanding more uh, financial instruction and teaching, demanding more churches to be planted. We want to see your, I guess your breath, breathe on that district. You're a very good God. And we know that you do this. And I know that there are going to be around 700 kids unwrapping gifts or not unwrapping gifts. 700 kids that are going to be off of school and around a family that will have fractures in it. And Lord, we pray that in some way, some shape and form, you show yourself in a very real way to them, in a very substantial and marked way that they they remember it for the rest of their lives. And Father, that we would have doors open for us in that area, that even our hearts would be open to that area. We love you, Jesus. You're so good to us. You're very noble and kind. And I do believe that you're going to be kind and that you are kind to that neighborhood. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, listen, I've got a theory when it comes to mirrors um, and how we look into mirrors. Now, I'm a little bit vain, so I know I'm, I think I could be a, a, a bit of a, an expert here. But I think that people all across the world, whether they're good looking or beautiful or not, I think they look into a mirror and they see problems with what they see, right? Even the beautiful people of the world. And there's a lot of beautiful people in the world, right? That we look at them and we think there's nothing wrong with how they look. They probably wake up in the morning and look at the mirror and just tussle the hair and walk right out the door, really pleased with how they look. But I think even the beautiful people, the most handsome men and the most beautiful women, look in the mirror and think, eh, I mean, I'll work with what I have, I guess. I was looking in the mirror this morning, not like I'm thinking, hey, you know, but I was looking in the mirror and thinking, man, my, my right nostril is a little smaller than the left. Nothing I can do about that. I can't change that. I mean, I guess now I'm all subconscious about it because I didn't even know it until like this morning. But you know what else I noticed about myself this morning? A little bit of too much information for you because you always want that with people is I noticed that I have little white ear hairs growing out of my right ear, but not my left. Why? I don't know. But it's all coming out of my right ear. So I've got to be consistent with that. I've got to weed whack that stuff down or I'm going to look like I'm 150 years old, but not my other ear apparently, just this one. I look at myself and I think, 
that's just what I have to work with. I think everybody does that. On top of this theory, I also have a theory that Christmas acts like that for our entire year. That we celebrate the Christmas season, but really it's also a reflection on the last 11 months and change, on how we've done, and we see everything, our mistakes, our problems, and we just kind of rub our hands together and say, that's what I have to work with. I don't know if I can change it or not. It's interesting what that time of year, what this time of year produces for us, right? You have 11 months of mistakes to think about in the next two weeks or so. Merry Christmas. You have mistakes, decisions you should have made that you didn't, regrets that you have. You spent money in places you shouldn't have spent money. You lost money. You damaged some relationships. You've said some stupid things, haven't you? I have. 11 months full of that. But you throw that ingredient into a big pot of stew with a couple other ingredients. One is, is this is also a time of year where you are, I guess, proximal with relationships that are typically kind of distal, right? You see family that you don't normally see all the time. And so what are the questions they ask? How are you doing? So you have to regurgitate how the last 11 months have been. In a season, to add a third ingredient, in a season where... You're not really working as much. Most of us, if not all of us, are going to have Christmas Day off. Most of us will have Christmas Eve off, New Year's Day off. There's not going to be the distractions around to keep you from thinking about how stinky your life really has been this last year. Add to that another ingredient, which is you look around in a materialistic age and people are wearing new things, driving new things, experiencing new things, making it look like they are so happy even when you're not. You add all those things together, it's not such a happy time for many people. It's easy to look at our last 11 months and see the underwhelming year that we've had and think my life kind of stinks. And I think that's part of the appeal of a new year, right? The fact that January 1st is coming and maybe, just maybe, a new blank slate will change things. Maybe change is possible. That's how I feel. I didn't have a a bad 2015. I had a hard 2015, but it wasn't horrible. But there still is a hope that 2016 will be totally different than what 2015 is or was. And I know when it all is said and done and I'm done assessing and appraising how this last year went, I want to change. I want change in my life. And and there, I, I don't think I'm alone. I think you want to change. Take a grand scope of what your last year is. I know you want to change some things. As we don't look in the mirror and believe that everything is okay, I know you're not looking at your year and thinking everything is okay. We want to lose weight in some areas. We want to gain weight in some areas. We want to stop stressing out about things. We want to stop being anxious. We want to finally kill that lust problem. We want to trust God with our money more, right? We want to be better parents. We want to be better employees. We want to be a better spouse. We want to be better lovers. We want to be better neighbors. We want to be better missionaries. We want to be better everything. We just want to change. Maybe you're like me, because I want to change. It is okay as my last year was. I still look at a big pile of underwhelming lack. And I think it could be different. And because I have so many mistakes and regrets, I feel, maybe you're like me, I feel like I am not as qualified to help the people around me because I'm a mess myself, right? So like here's a picture of what I'm saying. 
I went on and I did some research on what the qualifications were to be a lifeguard for the YMCA, right? To be a lifeguard at the YMCA, you have to be able to swim 550 yards without stopping, which is about 12, 13, 14 minutes if you're just going at a good pace, without stopping, right? About a third of a mile. You have to be able to pick up a brick off the bottom of the pool and swim with that brick for 25 yards, which is a link, not a lap, but a link. You have to be able to tread water with your feet, staying up and not drowning, obviously, for two minutes. If you could do these things, you could be a lifeguard. Why the qualifications? It's, it's obvious. Because you don't want to be in the middle of this pool just splashing and screaming for help, and you're drinking pool water, which is nasty, and you're doing that because you're drowning. Water's coming up over your head. You're thinking, this is it. I'm dying. Your life is flashing before your eyes until you see the lifeguard dive into the pool only to be a worse swimmer than you, gumping his way out there, frothing at the mouth, crying. He's drinking water. He's, you're going to have to stop drowning and gear up just to save the lifeguard. It's a bad situation. That's why there's qualifications. And I think this is the way it feels for a lot of Christians. Hey, brother, I'd love to help you right now, but I'm struggling in that department myself. Good luck. Good luck. And there is the grand tension for us as God's people because God has called us to disciple other people. He's given us the mandate to build disciples of all people. Yet we're very deformed people ourselves, aren't we? We feel unqualified, maybe even disqualified to shape and to build others up because we look at our own shape and it's kind of amorphous and gooey. I don't have a good shape to myself. I'm supposed to get my fingerprints all over their life. It's not going to happen. They're on their own. Maybe when I get my life figured out, then I will start shaping other people. This gives birth to just simple church physics. Simple church physics is, I'd say most of you, most of you, six, seven out of ten, would be able to honestly say and point to a name or two of people that are kind of forming you, discipling you to look a little bit more like Jesus than you did before, right? So if someone were to say, who is discipling you, you could come up with a couple names. Some of you more intensely than others, but you'd have some. But I think there's probably only two or three out of ten of you that would be able to say, I am an active part of doing that with somebody else. Do you see how it flips? Sunday morning becomes the time where professionals do that work for you. And allegedly, I'm supposed to be discipling you right now in this very moment, right? It's the 80-20 rule. And I think the number one reason that people are not diving in and helping form others to look more like Jesus is because they feel misshapen. They feel unqualified. They haven't changed. How are they going to help someone else change? So what does this have to do with Christmas? I think this has everything to do with Christmas, because Christmas not only celebrates Jesus' bursting into the darkness of mankind in the manger as the full God-man. Not only does an appearing happen and grace come to mankind, but I also see that there is a changing in us through the person of the Holy Spirit as well. I think it's hand in hand with the manger scene. I think hand-in-hand hand with Jesus bursting on the scene is the Holy Spirit bursting into us as his church and changing us. Grace came to rescue us. I think grace is here to renovate us. I think grace came to adopt us all, but I think grace is here to alter us, change us. Look in Titus 2, 
Turn to Titus 2 if you have a device or a Bible with you. This has been the passage that we looked at last week. It's the one that we're going to ride in this week. And there's another passage in Romans, if, if you feel like turning there as well, Romans 8. And that's going to carry a lot of weight, helping us see Jesus more clearly today. But Paul is addressing Titus as a church planter and as a pastor of the Cretans. And he says this in verse 11, which is what we looked at last week. We just looked at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's our manger scene. That's the nativity. That's God coming to live among man. He has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's grace present with us. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is grace to come. So last week we looked at it, if you have the slides. Last week we looked at how grace has come in the past, past grace, for the grace of God has appeared. Today we're going to look at grace presence. Grace is here to train us actively do something now, instruct and train us. And the next week, verse 13, we're going to look at how we're waiting for a new grace to come, a second appearing, a second epiphany. We live between appearings and between epiphanies. That's what Christmas is, not just grace arriving, but grace existing with us today. I think Jesus, it's important to remember that Jesus beat death when he vacated an empty tomb but he beats sin on the cross, right? He beats sin and death. And what that does for you and me is it makes it to where we are no longer held hostage under what the flesh must do as we once were. We're no longer held hostage over what the body absolutely hungers for and must have. We've been given the gift of change by the power of Holy Spirit, the gift of change. God is actively, gracefully changing us from the inside out day after day after day, as we're about to look at in this passage. And I think if we were to look just under the hood, if we were to kind of pop open the hood on what change looks like and how the Holy Spirit does that, you have to understand Christology, just, just a hair of it. Now, that's a fancy word for just the study of Christ as a person of God. So God, the Son in Jesus Christ. Basic Christology shows us that the life, death, and life of Jesus was all by the power of the Holy Spirit all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not existing and doing independent of the Holy Spirit, but incredibly intimate and entwined with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you a couple passages and you'll see what I mean. Look at Luke 134 up on the screen. And the angel answered her. This is an angel talking to Mary as a virgin. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit is part of the birthing process. Virgin plus Holy Spirit equals Jesus. That's what's going on here, okay? Matthew 3, 16. And when Jesus was baptized, this is more than 30 years later, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, never to lift again. Everything Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit, even being raised from the dead. Look at Romans 8, 11, which will also be on the screen. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is what God is showing us, that the life, death, and life, all of Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not independent, but intimately tied. Just a side note, it's good that we, when we're talking about change, are careful. Because sometimes we can see, if we're not careful, God being far off. He's distant because he's big and he's God, right? So he's far off. And he works on us through very long arms, right? He's very far away, but he's got long arms and he loves us, so he's going to work on us. That's not a real picture of what it is, though. He's not far off. Romans 8 says he dwells in us, working through us. Not far, working on us, in working through. He's very, very, very close to us. And because of this great thing that Jesus has done, and he rescues us by the Holy Spirit, and we become Christians because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we are also changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus walked and lived and had his being by the power of the Holy Spirit, so we do as well. 2 Corinthians 3, it says this. This is a helpful passage. It'll be up on the screen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's change. We're being transformed into the same image. Same image as what? The Lord. We're being transformed to look more and more like Jesus as days go on. Being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this change comes as grace to us by God's Spirit. Jesus in a manger does not just redeem a people, but changes a people all the same. I know I'm overstating this. And I know this seems incredibly basic to many of you. And on paper, I think it makes sense to all of us. But if we're honest, doesn't it feel a little bit elusive? Like it kind of slips through the fingers? Change? Isn't it easy just to look in the mirror and not see it? Kind of see the same person looking back at you month after month, year after year, where your 2015 didn't really look a whole lot different than your 2014 and your 2013 gives you little hope for any kind of change in 2016. And even the change that we do see, doesn't it just feel like it's like 1% change over here and half of 1% change over there? Almost indistinguishable. Not really much to just celebrate, you know? I don't know. Personally, I think I grow weary of trying to console myself that 1% here and 1% there is okay. I really do want radical change. I want radical change. I want to really change. Maybe you're like me and you want to stop hitting the same stupid potholes year after year. Same stupid issues. Maybe you are like me and you want to shape and form more people and speak into more people to look more like Jesus. Maybe you want to be renovated, radically renovated. I think verse 12 helps us in Titus. This is what Paul is saying. He says, training us. Grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Right? 
That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the Christmas grace, which appeared in Jesus, allows us to do two things. Drop old things and pick up new things. Very simple. Drop old things and pick up new things. Some of these things that we drop, he uses two phrases. He says ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are interestingly connected, right? They're not just two things. One begets the other. The only reason we even have worldly passions is because we have ungodliness in us, right? They're not two different things. One is causing the other. And these are things that we need to put down. And if I was to, is this, in as simple as way as possible, describe what ungodliness is, if it needed any explanation, it's just living a life. It doesn't mean murder, drunkenness, it means living any life out of reference with God, outside of any reference to God. That's what a life of ungodliness is. God being an anchor to us, a fixed reference point that defines all of our values, defines our thoughts, our decisions. That's when he is fixed as a proper reference point. Sometimes that doesn't happen, and we break that reference point. We become the reference point. Right? Back when this was written, there was no such thing as a compass that sailors would use. They would use the stars as what? As fixed reference points, right? It'd be dark at night, you know, and they would look up at the stars and they would say, we need to go this way or that way. They did not take those stars as suggestions. <laughs> they were actually fixed reference points that built value and decisions. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it? Have you ever really looked at the stars at night? I mean, do you think you could guide a ship like that? Personally, those stars, they kind of all look the same to me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'll talk to people sometimes, and they're like, yeah, if you could tell, that's the small dipper, and touching the big dipper or whatever, it all looks the same to me, man. We'd be in so much trouble if I was a captain of a boat. We'd just go in circles, because I can't tell one difference. But those sailors, they could, and they had some stars that were even more pronounced than others, and they became fixed reference points, and all of what they did was done within reference to those points. The same thing with a lighthouse, right? Not really a suggestion when it's foggy and stormy and you see a lighthouse. You dictate all of your actions and your values by that. Even the sun, if you think about it. The sun is a fixed reference point at least in our cosmos, and all these planets and things spin around the sun. It defines how long our day is. It defines how cold it is outside. It defines the length of our seasons. It's a fixed reference point. This has been helpful for me, looking at reference points and how ungodliness truly is just us living a life that is broken in its reference to God. And when our orientation is cracked, we are only capable of ungodliness and worldly passions. When that reference mark is broken and God is not your reference point, he is not in the center that you orbit, but you are in the center where everything orbits, you are only capable of ungodliness. There's really no alternative. Worldly passions will just be normal for you and for me. So if I was to bring that into the real world with us just for a moment, all I had to do was just start talking about worldly passions and some that you're struggling with probably already came to mind. It doesn't take long, does it? And it actually doesn't take long to kind of fan the flame and turn those worldly passions into something that's really out of control. Some of you felt it just by reading the passage without any kind of preaching on it. I say worldly passions, things pop up. Things that you really want to drop and put down. But it's been a struggle, a lack of change. You need to know 
whether that thing you need to put down is a greed or an insecurity or an addiction or a lust or something, you need to know that it is not there primarily because you have a problem with self-control and discipline. That worldly passion is there primarily because you have a broken orientation with God. And he is no longer your reference point. You have become your own reference point. In other words, there might be discipline that's in the issue. There might be self-control that needs to be amplified. There might need to be an accountability, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is you've become the center of your cosmos. The only thing that can happen is worldly passions. If you've struggled in putting things down, before you could even pick new things up, if you have struggled in putting things down, the center of your universe really needs to change. It needs to change. And the only way that can happen, the only way you can shift out of center and have God be the center reference point of your life is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You're powerless to do it on your own. Powerless. Change cannot happen without the Holy Spirit. This is where the world will disagree with me, by the way. Listen, you could change a habit. You could quit smoking without the Holy Spirit. Certainly, you'll pick something else up. But you could quit smoking. You could go on a diet and lose 200 pounds. You could stop cussing. You could start following the speed limit. You could do some outwardly behavioral modification. Drop some habits, not pick up some. You could do that. But I mean really change. Where the fingerprint of your soul looks radically different, that is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Those boulders, we don't move. Only by God. Let's look at Romans 8. This is a powerful passage. Listen, this text, this text in Romans 8, Really, the chapter probably deserves an entire series. We're only going to pull one thing out of this, but it's a provocative passage. You should spend some time on it on your own. Romans 8, verse 5. We're going to jump to verse 5. It'll be up on the screen as well. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Pause. What's it talking about? Orientation. Orientation. What's your reference point? What is your eyes fixed on? What is guiding your values, decisions, and thoughts? Very simple. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right? No change. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Listen, friends. He means business when he says this. You might do some things. You might do some cool things. You might be a billionaire and write $45 billion worth of money to a charity. You might save a bunch of kids from a burning bus. You might do some really cool, generous, benevolent things in the community. But if you do it with yourself in the center of your universe, you cannot please God. That is what he is saying right now. You can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, even though you're getting applause. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, meaning if, in fact, you're even a Christian. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. 
If this Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the tomb is in you, that Spirit of God will change you, alter your composition, leave you unlike what you were the year before. Whether it's 1% or 99%, it will change you. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what we want to grab out of this passage, because again, it's a tremendous text. We put some things down, we pick some things up. That's what Titus is saying here. And that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Putting some things down, picking some things up. I think in order to put some things down, you need to look at what your passions are currently and let that teach you and instruct you how far you've drifted from the Lord, what your reference point really has become. And that's really how you find it. You look at the breadcrumbs around you. What, what are you really hungering for? I mean, what can you, t- even today, not wait to get home to do? Is it unhealthy? Are there worldly passions that are ruling over you, dictating what you do, say, think, everything? Let that teach you. Let that show you. It shows me what I need to drop whenever I see those things. Listen, don't spend any more time. We have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? Don't spend any more energy trying to convince yourself that you have these sick passions, these worldly passions, yet everything is cool between you and God, and he's the center of your universe and sitting on the throne of your heart. Come on. Worldly passions come from an ungodly life where God is out of reference. Take an honest look at what you're hungering for. Take an honest look of what your passions are pointing out. I'm bumping into a lot of people, not, not just at Legacy, but just a bunch of people, just people that are living in some sort of a blatant or unrepentant or open or pervasive sin, and yet they're working so hard to convince themselves and everyone around them that they love Jesus with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. Must be exhausting to keep that charade up, just physically exhausting. This is why he says those in the flesh cannot please God. If you want to change, you have to be honest with what you're holding on to right now that needs to be dropped. That's the first step, really. I mean, the first step to change. What are you holding on to? You know, at this point, and this is a side note that might be helpful for you, whenever you see that thing, and some of you have already seen it, that thing or things that need to be dropped, It's a great time to thank God, to be thankful and celebratory about it. This is why. You couldn't see that unless the Holy Spirit showed you. We think that we come up with that stuff independently, right? Like we look in the mirror of our life and we go, oh, I've got this. I'm so insecure when I get around these people over here. And you, you think you came up with that. I think sometimes I'm actually that smart. Like I came up with that stuff. I didn't. You didn't. The Holy Ghost teaches us even what we need to repent for, right? It's a time to be thankful. What this shows you is that the Holy Spirit is that active in your life, that he loves you so much, he's actually even showing you what to put down so that you can pick up other things. Let's do this just for a second. I'm going to do it in under 20 seconds. I want to pray. Let's pray that just a prayer of thanksgiving because I know some of you are already seeing some things in your life that need to be put down. And you're actually not sure that you're going to do it yet. You're actually not sure or convinced it's going to be worth it. Some of you are already making excuses 
for some of the worldly passions. You're trying to Christify it, you know? But the Holy Spirit showed him to you. And that's because he is actively involved in your change process. That's worth giving thanks for, right? Let me thank God for us. Father, I thank you for being so good to me even this week and so good to our people even in this setting that as you show us these worldly passions, it's because you love us enough to let us see them. It is a grace. What we deserve is to float along with all of our life and never see that very thing that is pushing us away from you. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve you showing us and instructing us. We don't deserve that grace. But you give it to us because you love us. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good. You know, after you put some things down, you've got to pick some things up. And in Romans, Paul says, set your mind on the Spirit. And this seems kind of mystical, you know, to people. Very, very mystical or deistic. What does that mean to set your mind on the Spirit? Right? Who's a person and not an it? What does that even mean? Well, the whole goal of the Holy Spirit was to point us to God. Guide us towards God. Illuminate God so that we can see God better. To aim our gaze towards God in his glory. It's the role of the Holy Spirit at all times in our life. I think when we set our mind on the Spirit, we spend time, and time is the key word, reveling in what God has done for us. That's what the Holy Spirit is there to do. I don't just mean thinking about it, but I mean adoring what God has done. Being mystified, beholding what God has done, being captured by what God has done. This is what the Holy Spirit loves to do. And whenever that happens, that intoxication and fascination with what God has done causes us to drop things and pick up other things, right? I remember when Jordan was just a little kid taking him to um, Toys R Us, and he got his hands locked around these two toys. Man, he was not putting them down. He was just a little kid. I don't even know why I was there. Don't ever go there. Just buy it online. But I was there walking around Toys R Us, and he's got a death grip on two toys. Son, put those down. I'm putting them down. He's busy playing with them because he knows I'm not buying them. So he's going to play with them while he can, then go put it back on the shelf. But son, put those down. Go put those back. Not having it. Not having it. And then I saw this toy that I knew he would love. It lit up and made noises. Look at this. I mean, he dropped those toys so fast and ran over and picked up the better toys. The only way to get him to drop those old toys is to show him a better toy. We think we're more advanced than that. We're really not. We drop our toys whenever there's a better toy around. It's just part of us. And I think the more I sit at Jesus' feet, the more I've thrown myself down there right next to Mary, Martha's sister, who chose the better thing, right after I spend that time adoring Jesus and beholding what he has done and being fascinated by how much he loved me and pursues me, it's easier to just let go of the toys, the worldly passions, and pick up an upright and sensible life, as this passage is showing us. But without the Spirit, this is impossible. It's the Holy Spirit that even shows you that you have a problem. It's only the Holy Spirit that shows you how beautiful God is. All of this is done by God's grace to you and me. We can't repent without God's grace. We can't even love God more without the Holy Spirit, without God's grace. Sounds like he does all the work, doesn't it? Because that's how much he loves us. If we spend our lives trying to renounce things that we love and pick up things that we don't really like, Change will never happen. 
And if you do change, it will be because you are fearful or you are ashamed or you feel guilty, which is how most Christians change. Most Christians will try to muscle out and grit out their change because they're afraid God is going to blast them or they're ashamed of their sin or they feel guilty. And some weird thing will motivate that change rather than just a fascination for what God has done for them. But I find I am taken back by his goodness. And when I am taken back by his goodness, when I spend that time at his feet with the Holy Spirit showing me who God is, who he really is, I'm anxious to lay down some things. This is not my plea and my pitch to get you to do devotionals every day, even though that's a great step in the right direction. I'm not anti-devotional, right? I think it's good to have devotionals. But this is my plea for you to join Mary. In your devotional time, are you finding the feet of Jesus, or are you just learning stuff? You're just learning stuff. The goal of a good devotional, by the way, just as a side note, the goal of a good devotional is how it's nurturing your affections for Jesus. If you're just going through the tick sheet of whatever it is, Bible in a year plan, or you're going through whatever Bible study, and you're just going day after day after day, and it's causing you to learn more, but your heart's not changed, you're going in a pretty dangerous direction, to be honest with you. What good is learning things about God if it's not nurturing your appreciation and love and thanksgiving for God? It's wasted time. And if you leave a devotional time with no different view of God day after day, then all you'll have left to change from is fear, guilt, and shame. But if you nurture your adoration for God, nurture your affections of God by seeing that Jesus took your shame and took your fear and took your guilt away, if you can, if you can even for a moment get your minds around what he has done for you, that he didn't have to do, that he pursued you totally despite you. If you could do that and feast on that moment after moment and day after day after day, that's a devotional life that will lead you away from ungodliness and towards an upright, sensible, and godly life, as it says here in this text. I find personally that when I neglect these times at Jesus' feet, and I don't even know what to call them, quiet time, devotional time, I, I, I wouldn't even know. I think any word I come up with is encoded, and you're immediately going to think of something. So I'm just going to say, time at his feet, all right, for lack of a better phrase. I find that when I neglect this time, I begin to divorce him. I begin to recenter myself in the middle and push him out, and I become the reference point. You know, there is a corporation called the Rand Corporation back in 2013 that did a study on couples where one or both were in the military during long deployments. And what they found was is when a couple was in the military, one or both, and there was a long deployment involved, that there was a 28% increase in the chance of divorce. And actually that number would go up for every month that you stacked on top of the long deployment. Why? I mean, they're, they're devoted couples. They loved each other just as much as you did your spouse or you will your spouse. Why, why does that happen? Because they're not spending as much time together, actively nurturing their affections for each other. It's the same reason, and some will tell you that um, they were part of a, like a first responder or third watch type of a job. That, that, that's, that's kind of a rocky coastline for that industry and that profession as well because we're not nurturing our affections. If you see your wife or your husband once or twice a year, you're not nurturing what you used to nurture when you're with them every day. 
I think this takes time. Time together. Time at his feet. The big question for you today is, how are your affections being nurtured for Jesus and God's gospel for you? How is that happening for you today? How? Here's the two only application points I have for us before we go into worship. One is that it's as simple as this, and it really is as simple as this. Ask. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you love God more. That's what he loves to do. That's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. Spirit, I need to see Jesus bigger. He's too small. He's out on the periphery. He's not even in the middle like he needs to be. God, I need to see you more. I want to see you more. Enlarge yourself to me. When your prayers sound like that, it's not like God is saying, well, I would, but you're not even praying this right. Besides, there's like a special secret way to do that. You don't even know what it is, you know? The Holy Spirit is excited to just come in, and in the middle of an average day, a boringly predictable average day, you see a brilliant moment where you see God more clearly, right? That's how it happens. God, show me what you look like. Send your spirit to, to just blow my mind on how beautiful God is. Amaze me. And he will. Begin to ask God to show you more of him. And then ask God for the strength to trust him whenever you are removed from the center of your own orbit. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. And then you celebrate. And I think the second thing is, is we have to be honest. We have to repent of the passions that we have in our heart and what we have our hearts set on. You know, worldly passions, it doesn't just mean killing, adultery, theft. It means an overriding desire to have a perfect household above God's glory or a perfect job above God's glory or a perfect body above God's glory or a perfect relationship above God's glory. That's a worldly passion to put anything in front of God, anything that puts us in the center. Go ahead and stand with me. And as we pray, I want to pray from a place of rejoicing because this is the reality. If any kind of spiritual traffic happens in your heart today, whether you're putting things down, picking things up, both, whatever happens, we can thank God that he loves us enough to show us where we are veering, to show us what our passions are, that they've gone sick a little bit, and to show us what it is to put those things down and to show us that he will help us with it. Could you imagine if the Holy Spirit was not active in our lives, what change would look like? We'd be guessing the whole time. We wouldn't know where we were going wrong, and we wouldn't even know what right looked like. What does that look like? Think about that. You don't know what wrong looks like, and you don't know what right looks like. You just know you're supposed to be one or the other, and you don't even know which one you are. The Holy Spirit shows us this is ungodliness. This is godliness. He shows us where we're at, leads us to put things down, leads us to pick things up. That's how much he loves us. He's a good God, isn't he? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so kind that you do show us. You've shown me all week areas. You've shown me all month areas where I have put myself as the reference point rather than you. You've shown me where my ungodliness comes to bear. And God, that's your love to me that I would even see that.
And I know in this room right now, Father, you have people that you have shined a light on some ungodly, worldly passions that they have. And the best way that we could celebrate grace arriving in Christmas, the best way that we can do that is not just to sing some songs, but it's actually to honor what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in our lives today. And then, Father, I know that as we grow as a people that are very adept and quick at putting things down and picking things up, then we become a people that as unqualified as we might feel, have no problem putting our hands on other lives and helping them look more like Jesus from day after day after day, even one degree of glory to the next. Help us be a church of people that are honest with ourselves. Help us be a church of people that are fascinated with you, just blown away. And Lord, I know that even as I say that, there are some days, there are many days where I am not blown away by what you've done. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it, but Father, I'm not just obliterated by your grace. I'm on your team, and I love you, but I'm not just blown away. And God, I know that if I ask, you will bring. And I ask for this church, even for us, even for those who are sitting in this room right now, that we are not blown away. We are cool with you. We like you. We might even love you, but we are not mystified by you, that you would open up to where we could see what you've done. Reveal to us more of who you are, that we would be so blown away. Putting things down is a glorious act of worship for us that we don't even struggle with. You're so good to us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.